when I return, I almost like hugging even like banana trees. <laughs> so, uh, or just keeping my nose in the air so that I can smell the eucalyptus. It, it's more than just the people in the uh, work. It's, it's the place. It's a, it's a smell. It's, a, it's food. People in general. It's landscape. Hello and welcome to Dispersion. Dispersion is a podcast by the Zorian Institute that analyzes and celebrates both the diverse and common experiences of diasporas living away from their homeland. I'm your host, Jen. On this episode of Dispersion, we are exploring a concept known within diaspora studies as the myth of return, or more broadly, looking at the complex relationship between diaspora members and when they return to their homeland. This week, I'm joined by Joao Sardina and Regine King. Joao is an associate researcher in the Center for the Study of Migration and Intercultural Relations in the University of Alberta in Lisbon. He is the author of Immigrant Associations, Integration and Identity, Angolan, Brazilian, and Eastern European Communities in Portugal, based on his DPhil thesis from the University of Sussex. His research interests include second-generation migrant return, migrant life histories, qualitative research methodologies, immigrant associations, transnationalism, transnational social spaces, immigrant political participation, lifestyle migrations, and the Portuguese migration and diaspora. His co-guest today is Dr. Regine King, who is an associate professor in the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Calgary and an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Manitoba. Dr. King has a Bachelor's of Education from the National University of Rwanda, a Master's of Education in Counseling Psychology Community Development, and a PhD in social work from the University of Toronto. Dr. King also has postdoctoral training in social etiology of mental illnesses from the Center of Addiction and Mental Health at the University of Toronto. Her research interests focus on psychosocial processes involving survivors of organized and structural violence, including approaches to cross-cultural mental health, forgiveness and reconciliation among survivors of organized violence, mainly refugees and those who resettle in post-conflict settings. Thank you both so much for joining us today for this episode. So I'd like to start a discussion by putting your experiences as members of Diaspora into context a little bit more. So can you tell us a little bit more about your background, uh, your personal background, where you grew up, where you were born, and your experience as someone living in Canada as part of a Diaspora? Uh, Joao, maybe let's begin with you. Um, okay, yeah, I'd be happy to start things off. Um, before I do, uh, just if I can make one simple correction, I'm no longer at uh, Universidad Aberta. Uh, most recently, I was at the um, Organization for International Migration, and now I work for the, uh, the Polytechnic Institute of Lisbon. So just a, a brief correction there Thank on you. My, uh, where I'm at these days. Um, so yes, um, Remind me again of the question, <laughs> sorry. Of course, no. So we're just, before we get into the um, more in-depth questions about your experience, just tell our listeners a little bit more about your background personally, where you were born, where you were raised, and then translate that into, as someone who came to live in Canada as part of a diaspora, how was your experience? Okay, so I was born in um, in Portugal. I was born in a place called Cascais, which is 30 kilometers outside of the capital. Uh, Lisbon. Cascais is sort of like, uh, it's the resort area of the capital. So it's sort of like a, sort of like a Riviera area. It's, it's like a Monte Carlo, if, uh, you know, I guess you could say. And I moved to Canada in 1979. Um, I was seven years old at the time. So I moved with my parents, of course. And we moved to Northern British Columbia. We moved to the city, the lovely city of Prince George, where my father already had family. 
so we settled there and and that's basically where I lived for um the following 18 years from the age of seven to the age of 24. Um, so I did all my schooling there and then I, I did my university studies there too, my undergrad at the University of Northern British Columbia. And then I moved back to do my master's, to pursue a master's here in, um, here in Lisbon at the uh, Nova University of Lisbon. Yeah. So that's, pre- that's pretty much my, uh, my life as far as... Uh, that's your story. Yeah. Summing it up, yes. I get into a little bit more about kind of the whys and the pull factors in, in a little while. But Regine, for you, can you give us a similar uh, inlook into your background, where you grew up, and then when you came to Canada? Uh, yes, uh, my name is Regine Wibereho King. Uh, I am originally from Rwanda. I was born and raised there and completed my undergraduate uh, degree in, at the University of Rwanda. Uh, I moved to Toronto in 2000 as an adult. I made my own choices to move. So I didn't come to Canada as a refugee or anything. I lived in Toronto for 12 years. And when I started looking for work, I moved to the province of Manitoba in Winnipeg, uh, where I was an assistant professor for five years. And then uh, I moved to Calgary, Alberta in 2017. And I'm hoping that I don't have to move again. (laughs) Calgary is a great city. Um, I've only been briefly, but it's, it's a lovely place. Well, great. Thank you both for sharing a little bit more about your background, and that will help us contextualize some of your experiences as we get into it. So today we're talking really about this term returnee, which we can understand is used in diaspora scholarship to describe someone who has returned to their homeland after time away living as part of a diaspora. And what we're really interested in is exploring more today the myth of return. So the elements and the aspects of the experiences that returnees have when they resettle in the homeland and how these may differ from expectations or hopes or goals. So I'm curious to to know from each of you, um, what prompted your return home? And if you had any specific desires for a homeland experience before you moved back? Um, Regine, maybe starting with you in working in or in Going back to Rwanda, what were some of the motivating pull factors that fueled this? Uh, well, uh, I moved to, to Canada because of marriage. Uh, but before I left Rwanda, I understood that uh, a big part of my life was going to be lived in Canada. Uh, but uh, I really prayed to God and asked for uh, 10% of my time uh, in Rwanda. So at the time, I would say that I didn't know maybe what I was asking for, uh, but I believed that if I can just spend a month every year in Rwanda was going to be sufficient for me. Uh, I would say that uh, in the last 21 years of my marriage, I have been very blessed to return uh, several times but we have no intentions of uh, staying in Rwanda. Otherwise, um, in my culture, it would be like, okay, so maybe her husband just got tired of her and sent her home. So that right. wasn't the case. And I'm still married to the man of my love. And uh, I enjoy just returning to Rwanda. Maybe not 100%, uh, percent, those 10% um, I asked for when I left. 
but I have been very lucky to return at least every year and sometimes twice a year. And now I do uh, a significant part of my research uh, back in Rwanda. Right. And, and aside from your research, in this time that you spend back in Rwanda, what are some of the main reasons that you want to return? Is it to see family or to just reimmerse yourself in the culture? What are some of the big things that pull you back there every year? Uh, it's a combo of things. One, uh, I wanted to return, of course, because of family. Uh, I didn't have any family in Canada, so I felt like uh, uh, going back to Rwanda will give me a chance to stay in touch with my family. Uh, the second reason is that I was really doing interesting work in Rwanda uh, that uh, I considered it to be my vocation. So I didn't just want to cut the ties and just leave it behind. So I hoped that in one way or another, I was going to return and remain connected uh, to the work that was being done in the areas of uh, trauma healing, community rehabilitation, processes of uh, forgiveness and uh, reconciliation. I felt like it was, it was almost like an emerging era for Rwanda, as they called it, like New Rwanda, uh, as we were just uh, coming out of the genocide. So the process uh, of rehabilitation and now social development, uh, social development uh, continues. And I think there is more than just work, family. Uh, I lived in Rwanda for 33 years. That's a significant part of uh, a lifetime. Mm. Uh, so my sense of return was uh, to reconnect to what used to be uh, familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that the first few years I visited, and still I do, uh, I enjoyed the, the food. Um, I come from a farming family. Uh, when I return, I almost like hugging even like banana trees. <laughs> so, uh, or just keeping my nose in the air so that I can smell the eucalyptus. It, it's more than just the people and the uh, work. It's, mm. it's the place. It's a, it's a smell. It's, a, it's food. Uh, it's uh, people in general. It's landscape. I can go on and on. So there are so many reasons for me that make me return. Yeah, a wonderful way to look at it. Um, and Joao, for you, in the same question, in looking at returning, I know that you mentioned it was for schooling, but what were the other pull factors or what really prompted you to think, you know what, I, I could move back there and resettle back there? Um, well, I was sort of brought up, I was raised on the ideology of return, you could say, because um, my parents always had a return plan. Of course, there, <laughs> it's kind of interesting the way it happened, but their return plan sort of weakened while mine sort of started to gain strength as I uh, became older. Um, so I always had this return project in mind. I knew sooner or later that I would have to give Portugal a try to come back here, to live here, to settle here to try and make my life here and just to see what it, what it would be like. And, and so after I finished um, my degree at UNBC in Prince George, um, I thought it, I thought it was the perfect opportunity to, to maybe do a master's here, which is exactly what I pursued. So it was very much growing up. 
that sentiment of return was instilled in me. I mean, I can't, I can't put it any other way, really. And everything around me, uh, be it in the household, like I was lucky enough that my parents always spoke Portuguese to me. And, and I, I never really felt comfortable speaking English with my parents either. And so, and my, my father was, um, was president of the Portuguese Association for a few years. So I was very much ensconced in community. Um, so I always had that background within me as well, like driving me sort of uh, to keep contact with the culture. Um, of course, when you return, things are completely different from, uh, from what you imagine them to be or what are instilled in you um, while in the immigration setting. So, so yeah, the, the Portugal that I ended up encountering here was very much different from, uh, you know, from the, 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 the Portugal that was transmitted to me while growing up in Prince George, of course. But yeah, that's, that's pretty much what drove me to return, yeah. And that's really interesting that you grew up kind of um, marinating in this idea that at some point, I like how you put that, you'd have to give it a try, that you felt this was something inevitable. Um, and often when we talk about in diaspora literature, the myth of return, it does refer to this kind of emotional, emotive tie that remains between diaspora communities and the homeland. And it forms a sense of kinship and it upholds some of these cultural links that people use then to start to form their plan of return, as you said. But this myth element is getting at the notion that the homeland may not may no longer exist in some cases for some communities, or it may not represent an accurate experience of life in the homeland. And sometimes this myth is a collective idea formed by collective memory um, that's then held closely and, and taken care of within diaspora communities because of this desire to return. Uh, and sometimes they're based on individual beliefs that, that draw diaspora members back to their homeland. Um, and this myth of return has, of course, been impacted, as everything has, by globalization and developments in technology and the growth of international travel, which makes returning to your homeland much more feasible and much more possible. Uh, as Regina is saying, she hopes to try to get back every year and so on and so forth. But I'm interested to know the other ways that motivate diaspora members to become returnees. And some of these are, we've touched on already, things like family. Um, so how important for you both was the support system or the, the strong ties that you felt uh, to your homeland in, in eventually bringing you back there? Um, Joelle, for you, did you have strong family ties? Did you have friends already before you returned or were you starting anew? No, um, I did. It's interesting because um, co coming from uh, from the west coast of Canada, of course, I don't get the same opportunity. Well, I didn't get the same opportunities to come to Portugal as frequent as, say, someone from Toronto or Montreal would. Or, for example, a country like France, where there's a large Portuguese community and they come like twice a year. I never got that opportunity growing up. I remember in the 80s, I spent like a five-year period without coming to Portugal at all. That was like the longest period I ever spent um, was during those five years. So a lot of, um, so the return visits um, didn't play all that crucial uh, role in my life. It, it could have been, it could have, play, it could have played a lot more of a crucial role. But towards my later teens, um, was that when I finished high school and my years at university, that's when I sort of started getting more into, into being Portuguese, I guess you could say. And, and then I did invest more time in coming here because I made like uh, three or four visits within the space of five years or so. Um, and so I came on my own and yeah, I had friends. I had my grandmother here at the time who I would stay with and I made friends like in, in the hometown where I was born. 
um, through through other relatives, through cousins, basically, like basically through my cousins, I would meet other friends, so they would become my friends as well. But it's one of those it's one of those uh, short term uh, relationships where you're you're sort of like making friends and you're hanging out with these people for the summer because I would come for the summer and then once you're you're gone, you go back to you know go back to university, go back to Canada, go back to your friends that you have there. So um, so it's not quite the same thing. I mean, family is because I did move back in to do my master's in, in 1997. And for the first two years, I did live with my grandmother, which is like 30 kilometers outside of Lisbon. But then after those two years, I just moved into the city because I thought it would be more important to be closer to the university. And I got a little sick and tired of going back and forth every day. But yes, that's pretty much um, what drove me as far as the contacts and as far as um, you know, nurturing that, that sense of return. <laughs> And you did have that element. I know it sounded like you moved into the city later and, and started to develop your own relationships, but you had some element of familiarity there with family and with people who could introduce you to others. Um, so I'm sure in some way, maybe even subconsciously, that kind of helped you acclimatize to this decision to move back and to, to give Portugal a go. At Regine, for you, how do you balance support systems in in two different countries. So you have, as you were saying, your family um, when you go back to Rwanda, and then you you have a life here as well. And and how do you manage to stay in tune with your culture uh, through both of those support networks? It's quite complicated, you know? One thing is that when I return, I see so much uh, changes uh, that happen even in a matter of a year. Uh, so much has changed when I, I, I return. Uh, but also uh, the people I used to know, including family members, uh, they have their own lives going on when I'm not there. So it's not that I go back and try to catch up with everything that has happened. Actually, that would be so impossible. The more time I spend uh, on in Canada, uh, I also realized that w- w- the one thing I have learned over the years is also that uh, I change without knowing that I have changed. I have some funny stories of people telling me that how too Canadian I am um, <laughs> uh, when I return. And then I just, I'm just curious to ask them questions. Uh, what has changed? How do you see me differently? Uh, but uh, I think we all change regardless of uh, uh, those, the ties we used to have. And as time passes, uh, people have their different priorities. Uh, I would say that maybe the kind of work I do also uh, makes me more of an outsider when I return to Rwanda. Uh, I remember one time when I went to do my PhD dissertation and I spent four months in there in, in Rwanda my sister couldn't comprehend how I can spend a whole day in a room and not to go outside to see people. <laughs> so at the same time, uh, or just gathering around the fam- uh, uh, family dinners and be reminded that, oh, I have work to do, so I have to step outside. And then everyone will be looking at me as if I am just this alien they never knew before. <laughs> uh, so the kind of work I do uh, and people's own lives uh, do evolve. Uh, I think I have come to just accept that that's how things happen. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the things don't remain the same, and I shouldn't be looking for the sameness, uh, but be open to what uh, people and things become. I think, Regine, you raise a really interesting point um, about these visits home or, or returning somewhere and how that can act as a barometer for how you've changed. Um, and as someone who also didn't grow up in Canada, despite the fact that my accent would have you believe so, um, I can relate to that experience of going back and having family say, oh, you're so Canadian, or that's the most Canadian thing I've ever seen you do. So now I'm interested, Regine, you shared some, but Joelle, has that happened to you as well when you first settled back in Portugal for your master's? Did you have people commenting on your Canadianness often? Was it ever a point of contention? Oh, yes. Um, I mean, in, in a lot of situations, folks like myself who return, and I mean, when I returned in 97, my, my Portuguese wasn't perfect, for example. So as soon as I spoke something that was completely out of context, it's like, well, there's something not right with this person, right? Because he's not speaking. He's making mistakes when he speaks. So that way, or right away, you sort of like, you certainly have to tell people that like, well, you know, the reason I said this or I said that not correctly is because I'm not really from here. Um, you know, I lived 18 years, uh, the last 18 years in Canada. Uh, so, so right away, there's that s- sort of like the stereotype um, or stereotypes, I guess you could put it in plural, uh, that come with uh, with who you are, with where you're from and, and the way you, you handle yourself in society here, which might be a little different from the way people here handle themselves. Um, but I mean, even the little things, I mean, even, I mean, you get into discussions where, where people think, you know, like I remember when I got here, I remember, I remember getting into a discussion about ice hockey, you know, like, and, and to him, ice hockey was like this barbaric thing where people fight and, and you know, like, well, for us, it's like, yeah, that's hockey. <laughs> so, uh, so those are the little cultural differences, you know, and. Do you still find those? Do you still have instances where people can kind of decipher that maybe you haven't lived in Portugal all your life or you have kind of Canadianisms that you still carry with you? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, for sure. For sure, yes. I can give you all kinds of examples. Um, I'm just going to get into something maybe we'll, I don't know if you want to talk about, you're going to bring this up later about um, integrating uh, here into into society here. But the thing is, I run, um, I'm, I'm co-administer of a page called Canadians in Portugal here. It's like we started it as a, as a blog, now we, we just keep it on Facebook. So these are topics that come up all the time with people, mm. you know, Portuguese people who have returned and as well as Canadian expats that are living here as well. These sort of uh, debates about identity issues here in Portugal and integration issues and, and certain difficulties and contrasts with Portuguese society. I mean, we can get into all kinds of contrasts, everything from, you know, the lack of the sort of lack of organization here compared to an organized Canadian society, for example, these sorts of contrasts, like, I mean, there's plenty where we could t- be talking about, but these are the sorts of things where, you know, they come up all the time with people because you might um, be tempted to make comparisons all the time. You might be able to make uh, make those comparisons to the country where you come from. And that's, I mean, I think that's natural in a way. Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think it's default as humans to compare and contrast as a way to navigate our surroundings and Yes, very much so, yes. Yeah, when is that more prominent than when you've relocated somewhere, uh, even if that's um, a country where your parents are from and you've heard endless amounts about it, um, being there and adjusting yourself is, is different. And that leads me very well into my next question, and I'm, I'm interested to know what you both have to say here. So do you feel in any way that your view of the homeland 
was glorified or, or did it meet your expectations? And if it didn't, what were some of the elements that you had kind of prepared yourself for and you were all geared up for and then in getting there or in returning, you realize that's actually not an accurate depiction of, of how life was going to be in the homeland? Um, well, I personally do not have uh, any sort of issue with glorification. I mean, the thing um, the thing that maybe I could speak about or talk about in, in, in this aspect of discussion is um, has to do with the actual contrasts itself with the uh, with the differences one one finds because when you come here on holidays and the time you spend here on holidays even if you do come here on a two-month holiday like i used to the time you spend here is glorified so it's 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 carnivalized in a way because it's fun it's like it's going out to the beach every single day because you're here in the summer and in the evenings you go out to like a, a nightclub with your friends and stuff when you get here, life is not like that because when you come here on your two-month vacation in the summer, you're not dealing with bureaucracies. You're not dealing with uh, with any of those issues with, with getting a bank account or this or that. Um, when you move here, you are confronted with that. And that's when patience has to come in. And that was the biggest shock for me as far as integrating into Portuguese society. And that's not something you prepare for. <laughs> but I mean, my dad, but my dad did warn me, I must say. Uh, wasn't something you were entirely unequipped for just the reality of it on a day-to-day maybe wasn't exactly yes yes exactly yes that makes sense to me I'm I'm thinking kind of of my own experience and although I my parents are British and I grew up in the UK so the contrasts are, are much fewer and far between I think with Canada I still know that in reminiscing when my parents talk about the UK, they're not going to spend time talking about the bureaucracy or how to get a driver's license or how to, why would you, right? So exactly, you're, you're maybe coming across equipped with the much more exciting or the much more culturally specific things about returning to the homeland, not how to navigate paperwork and office staff. Exactly. Regine, for you, um, when you return to Rwanda or when you think about it and you think about visiting and why you want to be there, is there anything that has changed in terms of expectations or, or how you feel about the homeland compared to your now homeland of Canada? My return to Rwanda is quite a, a different experience, uh, simply because maybe the social interactions, they change. But uh, I knew that they changed from the time I left. Uh, I remember almost like living here in Canada and expecting that my friends are going to be writing me letters to tell me exactly how things are going on. No, that is stopped <laughs> as soon as I left. Uh, maybe I, or even writing or receiving letters and expecting to read something you wanted to know. Based on what their current realities are, I read them through my own lenses. But when I do return physically, I think over the years, one thing that uh, became very obvious uh, is the expectations that people have of me, that uh, now I live uh, in Canada, I must not have any problem. Um, number two, I must have lots of money mm. uh, to give away. Number three, I think they assume that I will, I'm not going to even be able to speak Kenya Rwanda, which is my mother tongue. And then they get surprised. But the surprise also becomes like, uh, oh, you speak a very, very old Kenya Rwanda. <laughs> uh, so that, that's almost like a, the social interaction. Uh, 
when it comes to being a part of life, like uh, going to a grocery store or trying to help my mom get her electricity back, <laughs> I find myself uh, maybe very impatient. And then I need to be very careful uh, because I think the, the first time I had to deal with her electricity bill, I became very impatient uh, because the processes were different. Uh, because I felt like uh, what was happening, they, people were taking advantage of her. And almost like my sister had to ask me to step aside, that if she lives there, she's going to be the one dealing with it when I'm gone. Mm-hmm. And therefore, <laughs> I should just step aside. But uh, I remember standing in a, a line in a grocery store, and this woman just came from outside rushing. She was on a motorbike. And she just went and grabbed the bread and a few other things she needed. And she literally walked to the front of the line. <laughs> and the car, I remember looking at the cashier and I was like, are you going to say something or do you want me to say something? <laughs> and she didn't. And then I, I'm like, so lady, uh, I think we are all waiting here. And I think you should go back to on the back of the line. And she looked at me, and everyone was looking at me, and I was like, oops. <laughs> and then she tried to explain, and then I was like, no, no, no. When you say you are in a hurry, you didn't ask any of us if we uh, we don't have other things to go and do at home. You just uh, rushed, almost like it took it as your own, you are entitled to do so. Mm-hmm. And they're almost like I had to accommodate, I guess, both clients. Uh, another cashier opened up uh, a station and then uh, invited me to go there and then invited a few others and then the woman was helped. There was no chaos created. Uh, but those are some of the things I feel like uh, our processes are different. At the same time, there are other occasions where I just look at, at what's happening and I go like, man, how do you handle this and remain patient? Especially when it's dealing with Canadians. I, I have been also able to travel with Canadians and uh, back to Rwanda. And I'm just aware, okay, I just want to tell my Canadian fellows to just shut up. <laughs> oh, I hope that's not recorded. <laughs> uh, because, uh, again, uh, different cultures, but also I think when it comes to uh, Westerners uh, going to uh, low-income countries like Rwanda is to feel like uh, regardless of what you know or don't know, you portray yourself as an expert mm-hmm. on explaining things, on telling people what to do, or assuming that the people have no dec- any sense of decency. So I remember times I have had to call in or out uh, my fellow Canadians, because I was like, that's just so inappropriate. You wouldn't do that in Canada. I was going to ask, Regine, have you had instances, so thinking of the, the cashier in the store, that's maybe an instance where Canadians would just culturally handle that differently. But do you have instances in Canada where you think in Rwanda we would do this differently or we would approach it? Does it go both ways, do you find? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
I, I do research with uh, immigrants and refugees uh, from uh, from uh, African countries, including Rwanda. Uh, there are things that happen here, uh, especially towards newcomers, that are so out of line uh, when you look at uh, the ways people can handle each other and they uh, behave themselves. Uh, one is uh, to assume that uh, if you come to Canada, you don't know how to use a toilet, you don't know how to uh, to, to turn the tap on, you, it's almost like you know nothing, literally nothing. So we need to teach you <laughs> how to turn the lights on. Uh, we need to teach you how to almost like, oh, there is so much, I wouldn't even go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, there's also that notion of uh, care and uh, cultural capital, uh, because I have had many, many of my uh, research participants uh, telling me how they feel so dehumanized uh, when, let's say, they, they see an old person carrying groceries uh, and struggling, and they try to help. And instead of appreciating the help, they are actually rebuked by screams that they are going to steal from somebody. Many of uh, uh, people who are newcomers, if they don't speak perfect English, they feel like just the helping comes first before they can even talk. Or by the time they say that, can I help you? They already have their hands on the the, the grocery bag and uh, almost like being screamed at that they are stealing. They want to steal from the person who is struggling. Or uh, uh, another example I think people have mentioned so many times, it's in relation to how the fear around interacting with children. In in my culture, I mean like in my Rwandan culture, uh, if you see a baby and you see that hopefulness and uh, almost like the excitement of wanting to hold a child or to give them a hug or... And I remember many of my fellow Rwandans uh, and Africans uh, or being so shocked that they are told that they keep your hands in your pocket. Mm. Don't touch, don't smile, don't like, kind of almost like express any kind of human connection, uh, human feeling uh, towards each other. Uh, so that becomes, uh, I think I, I still see that. I know that it's not right <laughs> uh, because I think that uh, COVID has reminded of us of how uh, human contact is very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's not uh, something that we cherish uh, or we promote here. Yeah, it must be challenging and at times difficult to juggle both of those sides, right? To juggle kind of the cultural, um, the Canadian cultural expectations and then Rwandan cultural expectations and how you as one person are a vehicle for both of those um, and how it feels to be kind of on the receiving end when you're in another country. Um, Yao, for you, how did moving and kind of going back and forth before you moved in the summers you spent there, how did this impact your identity? How would you at those times identify yourself? Were you Canadian? Were you a Canadian in Portugal? Were you Portuguese? How did you kind of package it up um, when people ask? Because inevitably they always do. If anything, it fortified my Portugueseness, I would say. It would always be the, the contact that you'd have, the physical contact that you'd have with the country itself is, is through those visits. So, yes, I mean, 
we didn't have the technology we have these days. So I would make friends here in the summertime and, and I would try to, you know, keep contact with those people. I mean, keeping contact with family was, was a lot easier because they're family. And so you talk to you, I, I spoke to my grandma all the time and my cousins would, uh, I mean, my cousins, for example, would send me cassettes of Portuguese pop music, you know, <laughs> things like that. So just so I could sort of keep in the loop, but yeah, so we'd write, we were in the days where we'd be writing letters, right? And we wouldn't be sending emails. Uh, of course, that all changed when I moved here in 90, after 97. That was, those contacts, those those days that I would spend here was, uh, yeah, they played a, they played a large, large role in, uh, in fortifying the desire mm-hmm. um, to want to come, to want to come back here and try living here. Yeah. So it was very important. To build off of that, talking about technology or the lack thereof, how has that changed now? I know you mentioned the Facebook page that you helped to run, but what do you think, and even you can answer this more broadly, what do you think the impact of technology has been on the formation of diaspora communities or the migrant experience, um, especially recently? Oh, it's changed a lot. I mean... (laughs) Um, I'll give you one example. I'll give you, um, yeah, one example that I think is, is a very rich example. Um, as I was saying before, my father, um, he was president of an association, of the Portuguese Association in Prince George. He started up um, a, a cable access show for the Portuguese community. So I would volunteer to go down there and, you know, help set up the place or help set up cameras. I didn't know what I was doing. Like I wasn't a professional, but I would always go down there on a Sunday with them and just help out. And the thing is, I would get, I would see these videos that would come in. So I would always like have a firsthand knowledge kind of, I guess you could say, um, of what was going to be played or what they were going to play and some things they wouldn't play for the program. But I would always see like things that would come in on cassettes, like on these shows. So I would, I would, I would have access to music and things like that. And otherwise I wouldn't have access to these things at all back in, I mean, living in Prince George. I mean, if I lived in Toronto, maybe it'd be different because they'd have their own, uh, their own programs. But um so it was very good in that aspect, but I didn't, we didn't have internet. We didn't have any of those things to, to facilitate a communication or if we needed to know a fact or if we needed to know something, we couldn't Google it right away where today we have that. And, and I mean, yeah, the page that I mentioned before, um, Canadians in Portugal, it's, it's a page that, I mean, every day we're putting stuff into that and it's, and it's very much, it fortifies, it very much fortifies my connection to both countries. And if it wasn't for that tech, that, that available technology and the way things have developed so much in the last 20 years, I would never have access to the best of both worlds. Like, I mean, this is, it's a very good thing um, to have access to, to technology. And I mean, when I first got, I remember when I first got my first Hotmail address, like back in 99 or something like that. And we were, and I switched, uh, and I'll switch, I was going back and forth with emails with my friends in Prince George and, and today we don't even email each other. We just, I mean, we go on WhatsApp or something like that. And if we have something to say, we'll say it. Say it. And if we have a picture to send, we'll send the picture right away, right? Um, so things have changed so much in, in that aspect. And and yeah, it's facilitated, you know, as you were saying before, globalization. It's um, it's changed so much. It's uh, so much of the world has changed uh, to the point where, you know, we can contact people right away at the moment as we speak, that sort of thing. Yeah. I think it's the picture thing that you raise as well, that we can now pictures, videos, live calls. So you're, you're in yes. touch with communities or with the landscape of a homeland that you 
and generations before you wouldn't have access to. I think it has really changed the way um, when we've had this come up across the season, across different guests, it's changed the way that we frame um, immigrating, emigrating, migration, um, because some of those things that were on the line before um, are not anymore, right? You, you may be able to go knowing that you have almost immediate access to your friends and your family back home and you can send them pictures and they can send you pictures. Um, I don't think that takes away from the difficulty of relocating and resettling, but it just adds a different element. So it's interesting to hear how for you um, that's facilitated, um, yeah, such a change in how you identify as someone now living in a different country. Um, So my last question, and it's a bit of a loaded one, and I know we just spoke about this whole best of both worlds concept, but how did you and how do you both feel in the host and the home countries? Do you identify with one location over another? Does it change and fluctuate? Um, and if you do identify with one country, whether that's the homeland or the hostland, what are some of the key markings that make you feel more um, more in tune with one place over another? This one's a bit of a free-for-all. I don't know who wants to start. <laughs> I can start. Um, at one point, I think you realize that you I'm going to say, uh, is it really belonging to one location or uh, belonging belonging to both or belonging to none at all? Uh, I, I think uh, to complicate the conversation, uh, I think uh, when I am here, I spend so much, most of my uh, my work, working hours, uh, I sleep and live here uh, so I w- would assume that uh, I locate myself uh, more in the place where I spend most of my time and yet uh, at the same time I guess because of uh, it's not my accent uh, I think it's more to do with uh, the color of my skin uh, as a black woman who learned that I was black when I moved uh, uh, to Canada, uh, it's uh, so hard to escape the question of where are you from? And this goes uh, uh, without saying that uh, it's a question that is asked to anybody looking different. Uh, and if you speak with an accent, it uh, becomes uh, obvious. Uh, so that question uh, unsettles my sense of uh, wanting to belong and locate myself in a place where I spend most of my energy and my time. Um, the, the, the way I feel like uh, uh, very, very Rwandan in Canada, yes. Uh, do I feel very uh, Canadian in Rwanda? Probably not, <laughs> very much. Uh, uh, simply because when I'm there, as long as I keep my mouth, I don't talk or I don't call the woman in the grocery store to go back to the line. <laughs> um, I can easily mingle in and nobody will ever know that I am from an, uh, I, I live outside the country. Um, so location for me, I think I have come to tell myself, maybe I'm, you just become a citizen of the world. Uh, 
because uh, I can't remain in Rwandan as much as I wish um, I could. Uh, I can't uh, shake off the color of my skin uh, to become to to like to mingle and not be noticed uh, in the Canadian society. So I just uh, allow myself to be, mm. uh, regardless of the place where I am, uh, and be mindful that I am different, uh, and be mindful that I have uh, different kinds of experiences. Uh, that it make me more of a citizen of the world rather than being tied to a particular place. But if you ask it to me right now in Canada and when I am being asked to uh, where I am from, uh, definitely uh, that reinforces my Rwandaness mm-hmm. um, or Africanness. When I'm back in Rwanda, I think I don't need to justify myself if people. Uh, ask questions of my uh, way about and how I behave the way I behave. Uh, I think I have reached a point where I feel like I don't owe anybody an explanation, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> because I remember a woman in Rwanda looking at me. Some uh, We were sitting outside in my brother's house and they were ma- doing my hair. And the woman stood in the front and she was like, so you are not from here. Where are you from? <laughs> and then I looked at her and I was like, how insulting that is. You find the people sitting around and you just pick one to ask them where they are from. <laughs> uh, yeah. She noticed something she felt like wasn't Rwandan, even though I was with among my sisters and brothers. Uh, yeah, so I feel like most of the time it's... Uh, either choosing to not having to justify myself and be okay with that. Um, Unless when I'm here and uh, I I am asking the question and I'm prepared to just uh, remind the person that uh, the question is inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a hybrid element to that, um, at least from the sounds of it, that it's a, it's a feeling or it's, it's a position that's always in flux. I know that concept of being a global citizen or a citizen of the world, Regine, I liked how you brought that up. And it's something we've heard uh, again across the season. Uh, one example comes to mind, the um, kind of uh, president of this organization of Zorian um, also feels similarly. And he shares his experience that he identifies with lots of different pieces from lots of different regions and countries that he's lived in across the world. And at the end of the day, that medley comes together to feel, yeah, like he is more a citizen of the globe and not of one place. He doesn't want to put himself into one box. So I see shades of a similar experience there. Um, Joao, for you, what's your take on all of this? How do you feel? Um, well, to be honest with you, having moved to Portugal, since I've been in Portugal, um, my Canadianness has actually become stronger as well. Um, and I mean this, and I can explain this on various levels. Um, first of all, my work here also involves, I mean, a lot of the work that I do here is autoethnographic because I, I do interviews and I do research on, um, on second generation returnees as well. So and there's a lot of contrasting with my own experiences and their experiences. Um, and so this has given me an opportunity as far as my research goes as far as um, 
talking to people, being with people and experiencing their experiences or sharing my experiences with their experiences, they sharing their experiences with my experience or contrasting those experiences. Um, And it's also given me an opportunity to do research in Canada. Um, So I've gotten to visit places in Canada. I mean, growing up in British Columbia, I'd never been, I'd been to Alberta, but I'd never been anywhere else besides Alberta in the 18 years that I lived there was either BC or Alberta. but I mean, not. I've been. I've done field work in Toronto. I've done field work in Ottawa. I've done field work in Montreal. Um, so I've actually gotten to know Canada better since I've been in Portugal than I did when when I used to live in Canada, um, which is great. Um, and then there's the other aspect of the fact that every single day of my life, I sort of like live between the two worlds. And that's once again, and I bring, I bring back the, uh, the Facebook page that I'm involved with where we sort of created this community online um, where every day we're putting in stuff and we're, we're debating things and, you know, and, that, and it's a great experience and it's a learning experience for everybody. And I know a lot of people here, uh, well, from the messages we get, <laughs> I know a lot of Canadians here, be them expats or being returnees, are very thankful as well that, that we have this connection. Um, and so, on that front, it's 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 great. It's been great for me, and and I'm happy. I'm happy uh, to be living in this situation where, where you know, both sides are very very present every day. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know. There are simple things like uh, the simplest of things. Like, I mean, we have poutine here now. Like we never had, like for years and years, we'd be like, we started the Facebook like 12 years ago. And, um, and I mean, for the first decade of the, of the, everybody would always be talking about, you know, it'd be nice to get, but now we have like a couple of poutine places that have come up in the last couple of years. So, so there's, there's, I never would have guessed that. I'm sorry. I have to interrupt your sentence there. Cause I'm so <laughs> shocked by that. Like in Lisbon, there are poutine restaurants. Yeah. There are a couple of places now. There's a, there's an actual place that just opened up. There's a, there's a food truck as well. That's open all year round down by the river. And uh, yeah. Are they run by Canadians then? Were they, Maybe you don't know, but yes, yes, yes. The the one fellow who actually opened up the the restaurant. There's the actual restaurant. There's the food truck, but then there's the actual restaurant that just opened up. Uh, I don't know, like over six months ago or so. That fellow, he's from Montreal, but he lived in Edmonton. He moved here from Edmonton. So wow. So that's his. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I guess in, in terms of again going back to that point on technology, having and and being able to share that on a a place like the Facebook page, I'm sure then brings in more Canadians and you have this nice like cyclical thing about people sharing what they would love to have and then someone doing it and then them being consumers. And yeah, that's fascinating. I never would have guessed. Yeah. Yeah. Next, it'll be a Tim Hortons if there isn't already one. Actually, there's a, there's a like three or four in Madrid, which is like an eight hour drive. And there are people who uh, actually bring that up. Like let's do a road trip to Madrid for, for Tim Hortons coffee. Yeah, I wouldn't do it, but uh, but there are people who bring that up in discussion. Yeah, that's funny, and and it's funny that those become the markers of. And again, we've talked about this uh, in other episodes that food and culture and pop culture become markers of uh, how you resettle as an individual. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Yeah, you tether yourself to. I know uh, I moved uh, in my undergrad at university. I did an exchange program and I went to Germany for eight months. Um, And as someone who's only lived in Canada half my life, 
I've never felt more Canadian than when I was there and I was seeking out Canadians um, and it really caught me off guard. Um, so it's fascinating to hear both of your stories about how you seek out or have sought out similar markers and, and how that's really solidified your identity. And on that note, thank you both so, so much for joining us today, for sharing your stories and your anecdotes um, and kind of putting some human experiences to this concept of the myth of return um, and what it means to go back somewhere that you you have this kind of attachment to, uh, whether it's through your family or through your, your ancestry. Um, so thank you both. Yes, thank you so much as well. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Dispersion a podcast by the Zorin Institute, which is a nonprofit organization that serves the cause of scholarship and public awareness relating to issues of universal human rights, genocide, and diaspora homeland relations. If you'd like to learn more about diaspora studies or about the Zorin Institute's other projects and programs, visit our website at www.zorininstitute.org, that's Z-O-R-Y-A-N, and find us across your favorite social media platforms at Zorian Institute. Next time on Dispersion, we'll be talking to two brand new guests who share with us their unique diaspora experiences, and we'll introduce you to a new concept within diaspora studies. Find Dispersion on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening.